My friends, what lays before you is the myriad knowledge of an unfathomable universe. Join our intrepid remembrancers as they explore the heresy as history. From deep within the farthest reaches of the great library of Tiska, we are the Heresy Grad School. So said the War Master in his wisdom. Go forth, my sons, and illuminate them. Well, hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of Heresy Grad School with your professors Dave, Jason, and Patrick. And uh, we're back into Paramar, and this is our, uh, I guess it's part four, yeah, we put out two episodes recently. Um, and, uh, we're yeah. back. We're back. And I'd like so to... So back. And I'd like to quickly say thank you um, to all of our Patreon listeners for doing our poll. And I guess we're doing Sisterhood of Silence after uh, all of Paramar, right? Yes, we are definitely going to explore some of the lore in Book 7. Anathemus Satana, the Sisters of Silence, and the Divisio Astro Telepathica. Um, some pretty good stuff that I'm looking forward to getting into. Uh, really forward to going yeah, I mean, that's going to be pretty awesome. But uh, without further ado, I think, uh, Jason, I guess we're starting out. We're starting out up on uh, page, what is it, 23 of our black book, if listeners are following. 24. Oh, 24 of our black books, listeners, if you're following along. We expect you to be taking notes, of course. Of course. It's all for the exam at the end of the semester. Right, the exam we continue to threaten with, but it never shows. <laughs> Just wait. Ah, <laughs> oh, gosh, I've had those professors before. What do you think grad school's like for me? <laughs> oh, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that business anymore. All right, guys, let's talk about what's going on with the Alpha Legion at the Battle of the Panopticon. So, this, uh, we talked about last time, uh, the Alpha Legion are in a hard spot here, because the Panopticon, they're trying to infiltrate it as fast as possible, because if they can gain control of the Paramar Nexus, then they can take Paramar 5 pretty quickly with minimal problems, and that's kind of what the Alpha Legion are all about. They're not about long protracted sieges. They're not about massive costly engagements. And the thing is, they don't really have the forces for a huge protracted war, especially with Paramar 5, which is a Mechanicum war stronghold. They've been stockpiling war materiel on this place for however many decades, and it's not something they want to have to deal with at length. So, uh, if they can take the Panopticon, and from there, the Terminus of the Paramar Nexus, then all of this is downhill, and it's going to be terrific. So, starting out uh, from this uh, teleport assault we talked about last time, the Annex Row is in kind of a bad place. It's just been rammed by the Tyche's Lament. And it's essentially trying to survive long enough for the Terminators that's teleported onto the space station to do their job. Because if the Panopticon starts to wake up, it's a huge problem because it's just going to be eliminated and it doesn't have the firepower to take out all of these Iron Warrior ships on top of the station itself. They don't want to take the station out. They want it intact or as intact as they can make it. Same thing with Paramar at large. So, these, this huge force of Terminators, and I wanted to pause here for a second, bring back, this is another of those points of scale that is completely different between 40k at large and the Heresy. Uh, this assault force is 200 Terminators assaulting the Panopticon, which is double what even most the, like, the best equipped chapters would have. 
you know, at their beck and call. And this is just a single space station assault. So, these Terminators start out doing pretty well. Uh, they're storming through every blockade, crushing Mechanicum, you know, add-ups out of their way. Obviously, they're loyalist turds, so, you know, the Mechanicum's not going to stand up too hard yet. Uh, they're specifically targeting the Panopticon Northern Chambers, so they can control the entire alert status of the Nexus facility, not just the Terminus itself. But unfortunately, within the Panopticon, uh, as soon as they get in, they realize shit slid downhill. Because it may have been a sort of cookie-cutter star you know, uh, base to begin with, but nothing they're running into matches any sort of schematics they've had available. Uh, the Mechanicum have moved in and really made plenty of modifications and everything's different. Uh, it's pointed out specifically this is not meant for the eyes or the footfall of the non-faithful. So this is a complete and total crazy saw labyrinth whose uh, structure is changed as it functions. And it's actually the kind of passion project of the master of the Paramar Nexus, one Archmagos Surya Nihon. So she has managed to build this station to her own specifications and modify it so she can manipulate it to react to invaders almost like a living body that like expels an infection so it's sluggish at first but once it builds up this um, momentum towards what's going on uh, it's kind of a huge problem to invaders because it's like a train picking up speed. It's really sluggish to get started, but it's a huge pain in the ass, and it's pretty relentless what, say, gets going. So, thralls among the Mechanicum workstations, just the baseline poor assholes that are just punching their day-to-day -day Mechanicum, I don't know, like time guards or whatever, uh, they start to disconnect from their workstations and hurl themselves at the Alpha Legionnaires. They're not really killing anybody, they're just slowing them enough to be annoying and making them expend the time and ammunition that they really don't have to deal with them. And at this point, walls and bulkheads in the station begin to rearrange themselves, not just at random, but to absolutely screw with the Terminators coming in. They're separating squads, they're trapping them in like makeshift dead ends just to make them waste time in carving their way out with like chain fists. Uh, like door consoles like automatically lock, uh, things explode as they get close to them, floor panels get charged with lightning. It's essentially like a crazy Zelda dungeon that is just getting worse the harder they push into it. So. It does point out specifically that it's actually pretty impressive the Alpha Legion manages to get as, like, as far and as do as well as they did. Like, how would you manage to make it through like a giant warehouse space station facility that's trying to kill you? Please tell me the Archmagos comes on the loudspeaker and says, "Would you like to play a game?" I mean, that can only be assumed, but it's heavily implied. And On she has top a tricycle. of which, of course. I mean, how else did Mechanicum Archmagi transport themselves? So, Castellax and Vorax start appearing from hidden bulkheads and trapdoors. As the Terminators are separated, uh, you know, they're specifically moving to remove the greatest strength of the Astartes. Like, time and time again, in both the Black Books and the Black Library books, we're told how much Astartes have an advantage because of their inherent coordination, of their squad tactics, of, you know, this is what, even though individually less powerful than, like, a custodian, uh, Astartes will still come out on top in a conflict because custodians are singular warriors. They're extremely powerful, but they don't coordinate that well. They fight as individual beings, whereas Astartes are linked 
and that's one of their major strengths, not just squad-based, but coordination across entire companies and legions. So the Mechanicum are specifically working to remove that support and coherency to separate the Terminators and try and deal with them in small groups. To the point the, autom uh, the Automata are even gaining their upper hand and the force of over 200 Terminators is slowly dwindling down. And again, 200 Terminators for just this assault is a major undertaking. But the problem here is the strategy is actually working and Paramar 5 is slowly built up to this inexorable defensive push back. Uh, they fail to take um, the objective in the northern terminal that they're shooting for, and it has some pretty immediate dire consequences. Uh, Paramar 5 is up to a full war footing by now, and the Annex Row, which has been simultaneously trying to stay on station to retrieve these Terminators, uh, fend off the Iron Warriors' escort ships, at long range and try not to get rammed again by the Tyche's Lament at short range uh, is suddenly and unfortunately destroyed by Lance Fire from Paramar 5 because uh, the Terminators have kind of failed to take the station in time. So this moves us on to our little next, uh, our next segment here, Fury from the Stars. So this is going full-on downhill for our, for our buddies, the Alpha Legion. Uh, the full-scale invasion of Paramar 5 is now kind of unavoidable. They can't stay for this long-range, long-drawn-out um, siege. First off, it's not their ball game. It's not what they're good at, and it would play into the defenders' advantages to castle up and use these deep stockpiles on the planet of war materiel. It's currently inert, but the longer the Alpha Legion give them, the more they can bring together, and the longer the Iron Warriors from the 77th Grand Battalion can uh, spend time uh, reinforcing the Mechanicum defenses. And to a point where taking Paramar 5 intact is almost impossible, which even if the Alpha Legion took the planet, they wouldn't have it in a usable state, which was what the War Master, you know, billed them with doing in the first place. So, the second wave of Mechanicum ships, uh, along with the second wave of Alpha Legion ships, sort of, you know, uh, Voidward still are stationed now that the Annex Row has been destroyed. Uh, even from where they're stationed, they can see the Mechanicum are armoring up. Uh, massive void shields are starting to power, uh, power up to protect ground facilities. You have the big, big problem, the Titan Forge Fanes in the Southern Pole, uh, hidden inside these giant mountain mesa complexes. They're powering up and readying maniples of Titans. And two, the 77th Grand Battalion, have deployed to assist at the Paramar Nexus, specifically around the Terminus facility. So, our uh, fleet commander of the Alpha Legion here, Armillus Dynat, uh, he knows this is a game where time is absolutely against him. Every minute he has is another minute that the Mechanicum and the Iron Warriors make this harder for him. So he orders every vessel in this first assault wave to burn their drives past safety limits, and even to the point where this um, allied force of Mechanicum, he has some of his own Astarte ships uh, grapple them to act almost as like gigantic tugboats to get these war barks from the Mechanicum and get their chubby asses faster up to where he needs them to deploy quicker. Now, this isn't a terrifically safe way to do things, especially in space with giant kilometers long ships, and he actually loses a few, but um, for him, it's kind of worth it. And they close uh, with Paramar 5 at pretty frightening velocity, but 
again, he's losing forces before he even gets to where he needs to be. The first thing he does, besides uh, tugging these Mechanicum ships, is to fire a pretty danger-close salvo on a near-hemispherical scale of um, spreads of torpedoes, even as the fleet itself is sort of decelerating into high, high orbit. Um, they're launching these very close-range uh, torpedo volleys to not really do damage because most of them are eliminated by defense lasers and counter-missile battery fire, things like that. But it's enough and it's such a huge spread that it actually blinds a lot of the defenses to what the Alpha Legion are doing and where they're positioning. Uh, as they get closer, the ships themselves begin adding fire. And this is where the really ballsy part of this initial landing comes in. Uh, Dynat has a small subfleet of three frigates hit low, low atmosphere. And we're talking hundreds of meters above the ground. For ships that are used to engagement distances of hundreds of thousands of kilometers, they are several hundred, period, hundred meters from the ground. And these three frigates are firing, again, these weapons meant for engagement at hundreds of thousands of kilometers, uh, super close at defense lasers and installations in the southern polar region to try and eliminate some of the strength from the forge veins there to separate them. But also they managed to carve out this 40 kilometer swath of um, essentially a clear zone south of the Paramar Nexus, which is a huge deal because it's a blind spot. And the defense lasers and other installations there, again, they're used to engaging targets in the void tens of thousands of kilometers away. Uh, they're having a lot of trouble firing on things this close, even though these ships are, the frigates are three kilometers long. So this is kind of ballsy, and again, it's causing uh, it's causing some problems. Only one of these frigates manages to survive. Uh, one kind of breaks up on its uh, entry, and it fires as much as it can, weapons and batteries, lance fire before it essentially nosedives into the ground. But uh, a second breaks up and kind of does a very unfortunate backflip as it tries to make it back into orbit. So uh, that's 66% uh, casualties there. Which is uh, not terrific with massive irreplaceable ships like this. But again, Dynat is taking all of these risks because everything time-wise is working against him in this. But now he has a massive, sort of more or less clear, 40-kilometer uh, landing zone. And this is where I would like you to bring your attention to uh, page 26 and 27. It's another one of these spectacular uh, double-page maps that uh, we absolutely love here. Uh, because you get to see, like, so succinctly where all of these things we're telling you about are going on on the surface of Paramar. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty neat to see them laid out so, like, divisively, and you can really see the time and the effort and the passion that the Forge World authors have put into this, you know, supporting material. Another thing I'd like to draw your attention to on, a uh, page 26, there is a pyroalchemical storage facility uh, of the Tagmata Paramar that's actually bigger than the Panopticon and the Terminus itself, which I think is hilarious, and uh, it, it it's just so perfectly Mechanicum. Like, their storage facility for hilarious, like, you know, Phosphex and Prometheum is bigger than the structure they're defending in the first place. Now, let's talk here about what's uh, what's coming down on the planet. 
uh, because we've got this big giant 40 kilometer landing zone that Dynat has risked and lost a lot of stuff to make happen. So I'm going to turn it over to Dave to tell you about what's going on here uh, materiel wise on the surface of Paramar. No, thanks, Jason. That was, um, that was a heroic effort on your part, man. Uh, you got us through a lot of the story. Um, what I love about the blowout, the, the sort of the tactical map on 26 and 27, is that it tells another part of the story that is really not in the lore, right? So um, this is the Battle of Paramar. This is the Paramar Nexus. So the Nexus is, is the conjunction of, um, but yeah, so, so this is, this is again, these little Easter eggs buried in, in, in the, uh, the lore here, uh, Provender loading station. Um, so you can see where the Alpha Legion has come down, right? So you've got three landing sites, um, and they've each got sort of their objectives. So if you've never looked at sort of these types of, of, of maps before, if you're you know, not into sort of military history or tactical maps, uh, let me just lay this out for you. All right, so in the upper left-hand corner, you've got your key of Loyalist forces and traitor forces. Loyalist forces, of course, the Tagmata Paramar, the Legions Astartes, Questorus Households, and Legio Graphonicus. Your traitor forces are the Tagmata Satriel, the Alpha Legion, Traitor Night Houses, which really are not traitors yet, and then the Legio Furians, so the Tiger Eyes. So this is where we get really some of our very first Lord's Households. So it's pretty cool that this is coming out. Um, and I'll circle back on this sort of at the end, but you can see where sort of the Tiger Eyes, um, back to page 26, 27, right? The blowout map. You can see where the Tiger Eyes are executing a um, advance and, and strike on the Legio Graphonicus. But they're also supported by um, storage facility, there are knights, but they're not aligned. And this really speaks to the Alpha Legion strategy, right? Dynet is all in. Um, so he really has to be all in at this point, you know, he, he, he's really all in at this point. So to figure out who these forces are, right, you can get a little bit from the narrative, but really you have to go to page 30. And on page 30, there's this call out box and it says the combatant forces invasion of Paramar, some Lord of battle. But so what we have here is we have the Paramar. Um, which is in defense of Paramar itself. It's made an armored brigade, uh, brigade of Otto Pretori, uh, two battle uh, cohorts, four interceptor squadrons, a basilicon detachment, and then various auxilia and ad secularis units to a DECA class heavy infantry regiment, approximately 5,000 alpha through gamma grade combatants. I'm reading that to you guys because I think it's the, it's just so, it's so thematic, right? And so the little, the asterisk they have there is, owing to environmental hostility, such units were confined, confined to progression defense. Then you have Legio Graphonicus. So Legio Graphonicus is uh, at demi-legio strength, three Primaris maniples, which we're going to go back and figure out what that is. Two Ventari maniples, one Securite regiment, and one Battle Automata cohort. Two Vassal Questorus households, House Coldshroud. And in command is Castellan Archmagos Tegmata Archmagos, right? The way the Mechanicum work, if you guys haven't been listening for a while, is essentially an Archmagos when. Uh, under a singular command structure. And then Princeps Master Chartain Baldor of the Legio Graphonicus. Very cool. And we're going to go back to this in a second. Forces of the Imperium Loyalists, you've got the 77th Grand Battalion, Iron Warriors, formerly of the... Th you have a cool name that I can't pronounce, uh, a super heavy tank company, um, and a cohort of Battle Automata. 
indenture to the legion. And then, of course, Kiravalin is in command. Traitor forces, um, you've got the Alpha Legion, unknown size, uh, probably upwards of 1,800 Astartes committed to this attack uh, with additional heavy support drawn from the Legion's Armorium. You've got the Legio Furians, which is a sub-Legio, estimated to comprise eight to 10 maniples of various classes. So you can already see that the Legio Furians outnumber, uh, just in terms of maniples, they outnumber the Griffonicus legions here. And then you've got the Tagmata Satriel, um, which they're a conquest and occupation force amalgamated from Mechanicum units loyal to the War Master and estimated strength armored demi-regiment autocratory. Four Phylaxi cohort Pentex, three battle automata cohorts, three Knight Quistorus households, Perdaxia and Raha. Now here, this is interesting, right? And I'm gonna say this is interesting. Houses Perdaxia and Raha, we know are uh, uh, vassal houses of Legiofurians. We don't know when they become vassal houses of Legiofurians, but it would seem that in this, at least, uh, task organization, that they're attached to the Tegmata Satria world, if there's more behind that. And then, of course, we have the Harrow Master Armalus Dynat and the Arc Magos herself, Inar Satria, and the Blood Princeps Nistru of uh, Legio Furians. So uh, here's uh, here's some some Easter eggs that I went back and found for you guys because of course we now have uh, Adeptus Titanicus, which is dedicated to the Horus Heresy. So on page ninety three of the Adeptus Titanicus core rulebook, the very first one, we have a Legio Graphonicus Reaver battle titan named the Eterno Rex. The Reaver-class battle titan Eterno Rex was the god engines of Princeps Eulus Kine, one of the most celebrated swordsmen of the War Griffin's order. He had fought over a hundred honor duels to first blood without suffering so much as a scratch in return. Princeps, Princeps Kine was to meet his end at the ruin of Meridan, however, where the crippled Eterno Rex was brought down by a savage and costly charge by over two dozen Serastus Knight Lancers of the traitor house Perdaxia. So, I don't know if this happened on Paramar. It probably didn't. Um, we don't know. But I thought it was cool because the Knights of Perdaxia are taking down a Loyalist Reaver Battle Titan. So... Uh, maybe, maybe it was, maybe it was here. Maybe it was a different engagement. Guys, I looked through the lore. Um, I, I just couldn't find any callbacks to Paramar, which really surprises me. Um, given that the extant material for, um, Titan battles in the horse heresy is just not vast. So I would have thought there would have been some, bit. please, uh, please let me know. But there's great material in here in, um, Titan Death, on page 52, you can see some Furians, Warlord, Battle Titan. Um, and then, of course, we get the House Cloud Shroud. So we finally get to see what House Cloud Shroud looks like. Um, in White Dwarf, I don't know if they have numbers anymore. I don't think they do. February of 2019. Uh, on page 132, we finally get to see what uh, Knight of House Cloud Shroud looks like. So this is pretty cool, because we've never seen one before, um, and it's from House Cloud Shroud. So with that, guys, I want to um, go back to page 26 and 27 and sort of let you guys mull this over a little bit. Um, we've got the Panopticon, which is largely defended elements there. Um, but they're being assaulted by the Alpha Legion. And then we've got uh, really this, this sort of multifaceted attack operation, but you can see 
that it's designed to really take over all the command and control centers on the Paramar Nexus. So that it's not a coordinate, I mean, it is a coordinated strike, but it's really just going after each one of these facilities. And then we have something called the Cybernetica Vault, which I don't think they even knew about. And uh, it may become important, I'm not sure. But with that, I will hand it back over to my um, colleague, Professor uh, Jason. Where, where are we at, sir? All right, so. So we are at the point where I am completely frustrated with Forge World because as you were talking, I tried my damnedest to Google. Uh, I even tried Bing, believe it or not, to figure I out. I tried ask Jeeves. It was real bad. Yeah, uh, yeah. to see what a Marlatium is. And the one relevant thing I could find uh, was a DACA article where some guy was asking, like, hey, what's a Marlatium? I read it in this book, and I don't know what it is. So um, I am forced to assume Forge World made that up because it doesn't even uh, translate to anything I can figure about. Shame on you, Forge World. Make this something so, up in no background. Yeah, so this is where listeners, like, if you guys know what this is, right, or if you even think you know what this is. Yeah, we'll take wild speculation. We are, like, what was it? Gyre worms. Like, right. if if you guys want to buzz in with some wild speculation on where Marlatium comes from, that would be terrific. Yeah, so. and we'll give you a shout out on uh, next episode. Hundred percent. Because, because let's be honest here, guys. We do a lot of deep diving, and we do a lot of research. Okay, more Dave and Jason do a lot of research. I, I just help. And <laughs> you make coordinate. Sure, make sure the cats are herded. Um, but there is just so much stuff out there. Like, I mean, you, you just heard Dave talk about the the force deployments, and like he went all the way into. A white dwarf he pulled out the at book like he went everywhere so just to find the color scheme for house cold shroud for us i mean isn't it cloud shroud is it oh cloud shroud or cold shroud that was cloud shroud i think it's cloud shroud yeah. i believe you cold shroud kind of sounds like a medication oh wait maybe i'm thinking hawk shroud there yes, you go yeah yeah that's a real thing Okay, there are more. <laughs> there's more than one nighthouse. All right, more no, than no, no, one. Actually, it's, it is cold shroud. Oh, oh what? Yeah, no, you're right, Jason. What? It's, it's it's cold shroud. No, you're absolutely right. Jason. I thought cloud shroud kind of sounded a little weird for a nighthouse, yeah. but I kind of went with it. It it rhymes. That's cloud shroud. <laughs> Somebody make house cloud shroud. Just. I request <laughs> baby blue. With light, white, pillowy um, clouds all over their armor. Thank you. That's all. <laughs> all right, guys. So, speaking of God Engines, uh, let's talk about this little segment, The Plane of Fire. So, you've got this giant landing zone. We know what's coming from this landing zone, thanks to Dave now. So... First out of the gate, you have Legiofurians, and they are not wasting any time. Uh, they are uh, probably stepping on a couple of friendlies. They are definitely stepping danger close, and it's said they're almost contemptuous of the allies that cannot uh, manage to get out of their way. And they are met immediately by Legio Graphonicus. And this is described, the next bit of this engagement, uh, as it would have been the most infamously intense fighting the Imperium had ever experienced if it had not come so close after the Dropsite Massacre. So, out of an entire universe of engagements, being second isn't that bad, when the only thing above you is the Dropsite Massacre to date. So, Furians and Graphonicus are exchanging almost at dead zero range. 
an incredible amount of firepower that's uh, immediately destroys a Tiger Eye Warlord, the uh, Lyakari, essentially just ceases to exist. Uh, its plasma core overloads and vaporizes a Warhound next to it called the Bloodhunger. And the uh, Graphonicus Reaver, the Southron Shield, uh, immediately comes apart from fire uh, from the Tiger Eyes. And the Alpha Legion has kind of taken in this no man's land that the Titans are created into an account and immediately divide in two. Uh, one goes towards the southwest terminus, the other a longer, more elliptical route towards the terminus itself from the southeast. And this is where the Alpha Legion, the hammer of the Alpha Legion, uh, strikes the anvil of Togmata Paramar, bolstered by the 77th Grand Battalion. And what happens in that engagement? Uh, dear listeners, you will find out next time on Heresy Grad School. Ooh, smooth segue. We're getting better at it. Yeah, we're working on it. Like, I can't wait to to get into these uh, Titan battles some more, because I know that's going to be sexy. It is entertaining stuff. Almost makes me want to play AT. Almost. Why are you not playing it? Because um, they brought out little fly planes with orcs. <clears throat> I, I don't I don't see any uh, gargant rules in AT, so sorry. Yet. Yet. I mean, there's probably fan rules out there. Definitely fan rules. I know I've seen some crazy orc terminals floating around out there. There are some orc terminals. I think somebody's been making gargants out of beer cans, I think. Um, last time I checked, it's pretty if apropos. You're not making gargants out of your cans, I feel like you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Strong uh, agree. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to uh, picking up next time. But I guess we'll uh, go right into plugs. Dave, you got anybody? Um, I think so. Uh, just, you know, stay tuned because that more and better and gooder things coming uh <laughs> main cast also stay tuned um it's pretty pretty cool stuff in the works for you guys so i don't know man i think there's going to be some, some interesting interesting content so we'll follow on that very cool jason uh Oh, wait. Dave and I had this brief conversation on how I shouldn't plug something, but I should explain the difference in move-through cover and grenades, because... That's right, folks. We're starting a new Heresy Grad School segment called Jason Explains That Rule. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I hope this does not become a long-running thing. Oh, no, no, no. You also have to explain tank shock and and a couple other rules, but we're going to save those. So let's let's give the listeners some perspective because like so this this happened in a in one of the main the main casts right so we were talking about sort of our experiences in Nova and and Jason is really a good player like he knows the rules inside and out has been playing since like probably third edition maybe longer. So I actually um, I started playing 40k the uh, week that third edition released in 1998. See, that's what, that's what I'm talking about, guys, right? That's awesome. So so Jason Jason is like intimate with the rules, right? Like he speaks he speaks the language. So what we were talking about is that there's this deep kit bag of rules that you can pull from that just most people don't either don't know don't know when to part of the game and you should be, you should be using them. Because it that's what they're for. It makes the game better. So this next public service announcement is brought to you by Jason. So Jason, <laughs> what are we talking about? Alright, so I mentioned in the main cast, I absolutely love some of these smaller fringe rules. Like uh, pinning and blind are two of my favorite things in the world. Because um, blind is essentially a one-third chance to just make a squad of Astartes useless for a turn. 
But uh, there's one thing I figured out from playing pretty consistently that people, especially in 7th edition, um, and sort of the updated 7th edition that uh, Age of Darkness uses, uh, they there's this weird interplay between uh, how cover affects assaults. Uh, most of my armies are robots or pseudo-robots. Um, and they, I mean, all of mine are uh, pretty assault heavy, so I use a lot of um, a lot of units that don't come stock with assault grenades, uh, like Castellax don't. And so it's something a lot of Legion players never have to take into account, because pretty much every unit in the Legion um, army list comes standard with uh, frag grenades and crack grenades. Uh, however. There's a very interesting kind of triangle of interplay between um, assault grenades, cover, and move through cover. So, move through cover uh, allows you to roll 3d6 instead of 2d6 when making a difficult terrain. So, that's a big deal. Um, also, they ignore dangerous terrain, which is a big deal too. Uh, but this also removes the penalty to movement for making an assault into cover. When you make an assault into cover, you receive an automatic negative two penalty, uh, negative two inches of movement penalty to whatever you roll on that 2d6. Now, what it does not do, uh, move through cover, is remove the penalty for striking at initiative one when you assault through cover. That's what assault grenades do. Conversely, assault grenades do not remove that negative two penalty to movement. So, it's a very interesting interplay that I realized a lot of people don't have a lot of experience with. And um, so if you ever have a somebody try to explain to you that no I have moved through cover um, they're still striking at initiative one unless they have assault grenades now that's not a very common occurrence but it happens so be aware of it hey Jason that's I mean I, I definitely wasn't aware of that now. Uh, but also assault grenades they're not like a they're just frag grenades and crack grenades right like you don't just this thing is like an assault grenade well, assault grenades are all, like, I think custodians have what, like the plasma grenades that are like strength 4, AP 4 instead of strength P, uh, strength 3, AP nothing? Yeah. Like frag grenades? Yeah. Yeah, I think those are all classified as, like, assault grenades. Okay, so, so here's my next question. Can you throw them? Can you yes. actually use, you can actually use grenades, right? Yeah, you can throw a frag grenade. It doesn't do a whole lot. Like, it's a strength 3 AP nothing blast, or I think the plasma grenade's strength 4 AP 4. So now I've seen this interpreted both ways. Uh, when they're assaulting, that somebody's got to throw one, right? So instead of shooting, somebody's got to chuck a grenade, and that that then counts as you are, you don't have the initiative one, right? But I've also just seen it. Uh, yeah, they have grenades. Uh, it's part of their their war gear. Um, so they're, they're throwing them, you know. And so I don't know. How, what do you? Think? That's a good question. I am not super positive, and I would have to do the research on it. Yeah. So the the, the whole throwing grenade thing came up in a game I played with Casey, mm -hmm. um, where I took like. Uh, so the Sisters of Silence um, have uh, psych out grenades. Yes. You, you throw, right? Obviously. You know, you throw. Um, it's a, I think it's a strength test. No, not a strength test. It's a scatter. Um, but anyway, grenades are definitely something that's in the, that are in the game that you see almost never. Like a thrown grenade. Oh, hang on. Here we go. Page 182. Uh, models equipped with assault grenades don't suffer the penalty to their initiative for charging enemies through difficult terrain, but fight at their normal initiative value in the ensuing combat. 
It's just as long as you're equipped with them, yeah. you don't have to throw one first. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so that's 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 makes sense. Um, However, uh, it does say for shooting, uh, when a unit armed with assault grenades makes a shooting attack, one model can choose to throw a grenade rather than using another shooting weapon. So yeah, it's not a prerequisite. So one model. And this is the whole one model thing that I just, I think it's just everything. With shooting. With sh uh, oh, in a shooting, so not assault. Got it. In an assault, yeah. you can use one grenade per model, but it's only ever one attack, regardless of the number of attacks on its profile or any bonuses. Got it. So, so in an assault, so if, you, if you're moving a squad up and you plan to assault, you could... Instead of shooting your bolter from the rings, right, you can throw grenades. Presumably, yes. right? Would you ever want it? I think in a lot of cases, no. Because uh, it's only got an 8-inch range and it's strength P, uh, 3 AP nothing. Oh, yeah. So chances are you're going to do less damage with that, even if you hit a couple of models, than you would with just rapid firing a bolt gun. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Still I guess cool. there's some very specific circumstances, I guess, where it'd be better. Like if you're tossing one into a super tightly packed bunch of, like, militia. Yeah, it's just like, yeah. Yeah, that could, that could do some serious damage. I want to see it. I want to see these very unlikely situations, like, come to play I will tell you though, um, infinitely better than assault grenades are defensive grenades. Uh, because one, uh, it's a strength one AP nothing grenade, uh, but it has the blind rule. And uh, unfortunately, that does mean you can't use it in an Overwatch. Because one of the absolute funniest things in the world for me is for somebody to charge my Mechanicum. And I take uh, the little photon gauntlets on everything I can, because they're like five points. And if you just hit them with one shot from the gauntlet, it forces a blind check. And so your opponent now can't stop this combat where he's now weapon skill one. Yay, yeah. can't hurt worship. Yeah, which is, which is great. And you think about these defensive grenades, and it's like, well, when would I ever use those? Because I would have to throw it during my shooting phase. Right? Because I can't usually know the watch. Um, Which is their one downside. I guess one guy, maybe. So maybe you, you come down and, um, like, a, a drop assault, right? That might be. So you come down and a drop assault, and uh, you, you have one guy to throw a defensive grenade, and then maybe. Yeah, you hope you get lucky. Uh, I actually use them in my um, Solar Auxilia. Uh, when I play them Assault Heavy, I've got two squads of the... Um, oh, God, what are the... Uh, the Velatari with Power Axes. Yes. Uh, they can actually take Shroud Bombs, which are, like, better defensive grenades. So they're uh, defensive grenades. So... Um, you can, you know, throw them with a blind check. Also, when stuff assaults you, uh, they don't gain, um, they count as, uh, what is it, the disordered charge, so they don't get the attack uh, bonuses from charging. Oh, really? Nice. Uh, but also, anything that's not a vehicle, demon, or gargantuan creature, or uh, anything with night vision, has to uh, pass a leadership check to charge you. But, anywho, um, they're pretty terrific, because Velatari are already pretty great in combat, but if you can nail something with a blind check and make it fail before you get into combat with them, uh, it's even better. That sounds amazing. I never, I never even knew that. I have those guys. Oh yeah, shroud bombs are the best. Yeah, pull out the solar ox. Uh. Honestly, when you play Mortals, I feel like you really have to work out every single special rule you can get your hands on. 
you know, to help even out all that Astartes bullshit. But, uh, yeah, so that's my plug for the evening. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm happy we, uh, we now have a new segment. Pat, what do you got? I don't have a whole lot other than saying, you know, thank you again, listeners, for, well, listening in, and shout out to... All our uh, Patreon folks for uh, helping extra with the support. So I think we're going to get through Paramar probably in one more episode. Pretty sure we can yeah. get there from here. Yeah, I'm um, hoping so. Yeah, maybe one more. So yeah, oh definitely one more. So, um, so yeah, so, so guys, you know you're excited about the Sisters of Silence. And so are we. Um, but uh, yeah, we're we're gonna, we're gonna get there soon. So yeah, I guess. Uh, oh, go ahead, Dave. Sorry. No, that's, that's all I got. That's I mean, I got, guys. I'm a little disappointed that I'm gonna have to listen to a bunch of loyalist propaganda for at least a couple episodes. But other than that, I am content. I mean, it, it, it'll still be good. I, I'm, I'm a little butthurt nobody... Re- I mean, people kind of voted for Karn, but, but it was the overwhelming majority went for uh, Sisters of Silence, so... I mean, we can totally talk about that eventually. We can just do, like, a World Eater episode. Granted, I, I feel like we talk about, like, the 40k personas of a lot of the characters in the 30k universe, like, constantly, at least within the intros and that kind of stuff. And why don't a lot of those characters like Karn or Callus Typhon that have survived for 10,000 years have Eternal Warrior? It is an eternal mystery. <laughs> right. Well, guys, um, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll talk at you next time. Bye. You fuck off, Craig. Okay, well, fuck off, Craig, even though he's not here. <laughs> All right, talk to you guys later. <laughs>